Well, good evening. What we're going to do is pick up right where we left off last week in John chapter 6. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 6, we can dive right in. But before we do that, I recognize that some of you weren't here. Some of you were here last week. And let's be real, you just forgot what we talked about. So uh, what we're going to do is do a little review. And for those of you who were here last week, it's going to be a little pop quiz. You didn't know you got quizzes at church, but I'm going to need your help, okay? So... Does anyone know what festival is the backdrop for John chapter 6? Come on now, throw me a bone. Passover, exactly. The Passover was the annual event that helped the nation of Israel remember how God delivered them from the Egyptians when they were in slavery. Now, during Jesus' day, they were no longer slaves under Egypt. In fact, uh, they were in their own land, but the Roman Empire was in charge, and the Roman Empire oppressed them. So what might the Israelites have been thinking of during Passover in Jesus' day? Freedom from the Romans. Thank you, Emily. Exactly. Not only did uh, Passover become a a holiday or a, a festival of remembrance of how God delivered them from Egypt, but it became a banner of hope for how God might deliver them from the Roman oppressors that they were under. Now... The people had this Exodus imagery, this Passover imagery in their mind. And then Jesus does some amazing things. He feeds 5,000 people in the wilderness, creates bread out of five loaves and two fish, multiplies it enough to feed all those people, just like Moses in the wilderness. Then Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee. He manipulates the water. He treads on top of it, just like God is said to have done in Job 9.8. So here Jesus is doing the things that God does. And then he says something amazing in the earlier parts of John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And last week we talked about that term, I am. That's how God, Yahweh, described himself. In what book? Exodus. Exodus. All fresh on the mind because of the Passover. Jesus does the things only God can do. He says the the things only God can say. And He brought good news to the people. He said that all who the Father brings to Him, He will lose none. He will not cast you out, and He will not let anyone pluck you out of His hand. That's the good news. And now we're going to pick up the story in John 6 verses 41 through 71. Now, I wasn't going to read this all, but I am. I just decided to. Would you please stand for the reading of the Gospel? Now, I know that we are not an oral culture anymore, and that this 30 verses could seem like a lot. But one of the things we believe is that when the Word of God is proclaimed, something happens. The Spirit takes that Word and does a work in us. So whether you want to follow along or close your eyes and listen, would you allow yourself to be confronted with the Gospel? Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. 
They were saying, Isn't this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews begin to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink, the authentic food and drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray Him. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. And as a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. We believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you? The twelve, and yet one of you, is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You may be seated. The first thing that we see is that the Jews were grumbling. And remember, when we encounter that term in John, it almost always means, not Jewish heritage people, but the Jewish religious leaders. After all, Jesus was a Jew, right? So what he's saying here is that the religious leaders were, were grumbling. 
Jesus has just amassed a huge following. He fed 5,000 in the wilderness. Many people from that group were following Him. He had healed folks and, and those people were following Him. He was doing the things only God can do and saying the things only God could say. And yet the leaders began to grumble at Him. Jesus didn't fit into their preconceived notions. They thought they knew who His parents were. And so, despite all the signs and wonders He was doing, He simply couldn't be from heaven. Because didn't they know His parents? Joseph and Mary? And they grumble. Now, what they're grumbling about in the Scripture isn't so important as the fact that they were grumbling. Just minutes earlier, Candace read us from Exodus 16. In that text, which would have been fresh in the people's mind because of the Passover season, the people grumble against God. And here, over a thousand years after that original Exodus, that original wandering in the desert, the people are grumbling again. So why does John, the author of this gospel, give us this detail right here in chapter 6? Because grumbling is dangerous. Grumbling is actually a matter of life and death. Here's why. Grumbling leads to unbelief. Grumbling leads to unbelief. Earlier on in John chapter 6, the people say, What work may we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. Belief is the foundation to life. Grumbling causes unbelief and therefore death. A grumbling attitude focuses us on the negative. It distorts the facts. For grumblers, the grass is always greener on the other side. Consider the Exodus. The people of Israel had been enslaved by the Egyptians in harsh slavery. For nearly 400 years, they cried out to God over and over again. And God answers their cry. He sends a deliverer. Man's up to Pharaoh and shows him who's really God. He delivers the people, swoops them out of that desperate situation, brings them through the Red Sea, communes with them in a pillar of fire and smoke. His very presence is with them. And they grumble. And they grumble. Their memory becomes distorted. And this is what happens when we grumble. They begin to think back of the past more fondly than it actually existed. You remember in the scripture that Candace read, they said, oh, that we would just die or be back in Egypt where we had pots of meat and our bellies were full. Do you really think the slaves in Egypt had pots of meat just boiling over and their bellies were always full of this fine food? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And this is exactly what grumbling does. It causes us to remember falsely. I remember being in the middle of, uh, of grad school up at Regent. I was a year and a half into a three-year program, and I was in too far to give up, and I wasn't in far enough to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I had a deep case of the blues. I was probably mildly depressed, but I just didn't have time to, to think about it, so I was just in the dumps. And I started to remember, man, life was good back when I was in the Coast Guard. 
man, I didn't have to worry about money. My medical was paid for. and all these great adventures. Well, right. Life wasn't really better in the Coast Guard. Have you ever grumbled in your current situation or a situation in your life where you've tried to remember the past a little bit rosier than it actually was? Well, here are two main flaws to my grumbling. First, I totally distorted the facts. Yeah, my Coast Guard experience was great. I mean, there were some positive things about it. I learned a lot. But I was no happier there than I was in grad school. I conveniently forgot that I was gone over a third of the year when I was in the Coast Guard from my family. I conveniently forgot how difficult many of the jobs were, how many of them were you know, less than luxurious and a lot of cleaning bilges and things like that on ships. I forgot how little freedom I had living a life always on call. The second danger to my grumbling is that I forgot that God called me out of the Coast Guard to go into ministry. And that's the most important thing. It wasn't really my choice to be grumbling at all. I only have something to grumble against when I forget this reality. My life isn't my own. I've been bought with a price for a purpose. To do God's work. Being a disciple, see, is about us dying to our own agenda when our agenda conflicts with God's agenda. Being a disciple is about dying to our agenda when our agenda conflicts with God's agenda. You know, <laughs> that's part of the, the danger, I think, in reading and preaching through Scripture like, like we're doing here at Letters. Um, you just, this is not an easy passage. And I'd love to skip over stuff like this and you know, talk about how, no, your agenda is really okay and uh, you know, it's okay to grumble. And but that's not what the text says. The text warns us that grumbling against God is absolutely mortally dangerous. In fact, grumbling, uh, the, the Greek behind that word, actually means to argue with, to rage against. So it's not, grumbling is not the same as complaining. It's being angry and rebelling against God. When we grumble, we lose sight of God's good will for us. Now, the danger in grumbling is that grumble, grumblers usually attract grumblers, don't they? You remember that movie, The Grumpy Old Men? Well, that term, grumpy old men, isn't a cliche for nothing. In fact, I think I know the original grumpy old men. It happens to be my grandfather. You see, I lived with my grandfather when I was uh, just graduated high school. My parents moved over to, to Wenatchee for my dad's new job, and I had this landscaping gig, so I lived with him. And each morning, he would go to coffee with his friends downtown. Downtown Gig Harbor. And one day, I tagged along with these guys. You never met a more sour group of guys. Like, they could complain and grumble against any political leader. It didn't matter, Democrat or Republican. They would find something to complain about and grumble about. Sports teams, all oh, that. They're never good enough. After I left that place, I felt like I had to go home and take another shower. I was just like, oh, the negativity. It was, it was crazy. Retaining that type of grumbling attitude will suck the life out of you. So I want to talk about some strategies about how 
how not to live a life of grumbling. First of all, don't hang out with people who grumble all the time. <laughs> Grumblers will suck you down. But more importantly, to combat grumbling, we need the discipline of thanksgiving. The discipline of thanksgiving. Scripture is replete with petitions to rejoice and give thanks over and over again in the Psalms. You see it in, in the Apostle Paul. All over Scripture, give thanks. Remember what God has done for us. Now, giving thanks is a discipline. A discipline. That means it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's easy for us to focus on the negative, to forget all the wonderful things that God does for us every day. And that's why gathering for worship is so important. Why singing songs is so important because we sing out what is real. That God is a refuge. That He created us. That He loves us. That's why being confronted with the Scriptures is so important. Why the encouragement of this body of believers is so important. To be reminded that we have much to be thankful for. If you had the privilege of being here Monday night for our potluck last week, we got to talk about some of the awesome things that God's been doing. How as a church we've been able to give over $8,000 to the Evangelical Covenant. Most of that going to foreign mission. That as a church we've given over $4,000 to the North Pacific Conference for church planting so that other churches could be planted. That as a church we've been able to give over $4,500 just to projects in this neighborhood. Whether it be at the Mission or Agape House or Parkview Elementary. That as a church, just since this last April, we've seen 130 first-time visitors come through our doors. That as a church, you folks have given almost a thousand people hours in just service projects. That as a church, we've married off one couple, had seven babies born, baptized a baby, dedicated a baby. And there's a lot more to follow. My math is correct. Hey, we even have a softball team. What? There's a lot to be thankful for. Hey, one ancient and tested way to foster Thanksgiving in your life, I just want to throw this out, is that at the end of each evening, maybe right before you go to bed, take five, ten at the most, minutes, and just recount God's faithfulness throughout the day. Be amazed of the list you can make. And I'm talking about things like, hey, it's pretty cool that I'm breathing right now. My heart's beating. If you're kneeling by your bed, it's pretty cool that you have a bed because most people in the world don't. It's pretty neat that you have a roof. I mean, these little things are cause to rejoice. Now, I want to be clear, practicing the discipline of thanksgiving is not an art of delusion. It's not ignoring the fact that there are hard things in our life. It's not. The discipline of thanksgiving calls us to look at life with God's perspective. And you know, there's two men in my life and in yours that are really encouraging me right now. The first is Frank Hodge. This is a guy 
who's going through cancer treatment, I, there's, Frank, there hasn't been a difference in your demeanor, unless you're really good at hiding it, but there hasn't been a difference in your demeanor. Frank is just like, hey, this is what I've got. This is my treatment plan. And I'm going to live life the way it's going. And, and Frank counts his blessings. Look at Frank and Nancy. There's so many reasons why Frank could grumble. The other man is Gary Moore, who's with us today. I know you don't like that, but we just clap for you, but I'm sorry. Gary had surgery a couple weeks ago, had a disc in his neck replaced, or taken out and fused. When the doctor took that disc out, they found that it had calcified, and there was a spur of bone going into his spinal cord. And had they left that alone, he would be paralyzed in, who knows, a year, two years, five years? Is it fun to go under the knife? To probably not be able to go back to work to full capacity for months? No. There could be reasons to grumble. But Gary sees this as as the hand of God, protecting him from something much worse. And I know, Anne, you're, you're thankful to be sitting next to Gary right now. Thanksgiving will drive out our grumbling. Besides recollecting your day at the end, another thing we could do is to see our life maybe as a series of tests. See, God is more concerned with our character than our comfort. And in Exodus 16, God even says He's going to give food to the people. Why? Well, He's a nice God and He loves them, but He says He's testing them. He wants to see if they will respond with faithfulness. With faithfulness. In the beginning of John 6, Jesus says to Philip, Hey, we've got a problem. We're out here in the wilderness and there's all these mouths to feed. What are we going to do? John tells us, Jesus said this to test Philip. He knew what he was going to do. Jesus does test us. What if your current situation is a test from God? You know, I don't even think that's a valid question. Your current situation is a test from God. I'm telling you, I'm just saying that from a biblical perspective, your current situation is a test from God. Every situation we're in is an opportunity to prove or improve our faith. Our choices become habits. So every time I choose, Jesus, I'm going to follow you in this situation. I'm going to trust you in this situation. I become more and more a trusting person. Conversely, every time I try and do things my own way and don't listen to Jesus, I become more of a person closed off to trusting the Lord. This is why grumbling is so dangerous. Because it's not trusting God. And it is through trust, which is another way of saying faith, that we have the eternal life Jesus is talking about. So there's Jesus with a crowd of grumblers. Just earlier on, maybe in the day, maybe it was the day before, these same crowd of massive people were willing to, at one point, make Him king. And now he's got these followers who are grumbling against him. What if a church growth consultant came up to Jesus and gave him some advice at this point? Here he's got this big congregation 
And there's, there's starting to be a little tension. They're grumbling about some of his teaching. What would a church growth consultant tell Jesus to do in order to hang on to these people? Well, maybe a church growth consultant would say one of the following things. Jesus, you need to get a more contemporary service. Jesus, you need to give out free coffee mugs at the door. That will keep the people there. Jesus, could you offer more of that free bread? Like every time you guys get together, just do the bread thing. People like the bread thing. Do that. Or Jesus, you really need a nicer building because this whole wilderness setting and the synagogue thing, that's just not doing it for people. Jesus, you need to catch your mission and vision statement. You know this death to self thing? That's not very catchy. You need to blog and tweet twice a day. And you should preach on more compelling topics. All this trust and eating flesh and all this kind of stuff. How about 10 steps to improve your marriage? Or how to win friends and influence people? These are the things that will keep those thousands of people in in your congregation, Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to these grumblers? Basically says, eat me. Serious, I'm serious. I wasn't just looking forward to saying that. A little bit. But Jesus tells people, Jesus tells people, if you want this life, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, I've heard of some ridiculous church slogans before. In fact, we're going to show you just a few. Ian's going to put them up here. Turnerborn, this is the classic church billboard. I, I, okay, what's the next one? Because church shouldn't suck. You should go to Road of Life Church because it's caffeinated. Now, this surely is a good, good one. Okay. Oh, now nothing speaks like God's love for you like this one. You're not a clunker. God doesn't make junk. Isn't that special? I feel special. And this, <laughs> drive an X5 in the afterlife. Can we please get this one made up? Karina, can we have this one made on a banner? Drive an X5 in the afterlife. And then, my favorite, the dry t-shirt competition. I don't even want to know what that is. So, thanks Ian. There are some, I'll just say, ridiculous slogans out there. But could they be worse than eat my flesh, drink my blood, church? Wow, Jesus is really trying to keep these people, isn't he? So is he advocating cannibalism here? Is this his growth strategy? Well, absolutely not. The only thing more offensive to Jewish folks and most people even in the ancient Mediterranean world, the only thing more offensive than eating another person would be drinking their blood. Jesus is not saying that. But if he isn't talking about cannibalism, then what on earth is he talking about? What do I always say when we get to a tough passage? How are we going to find out what it might mean? It starts with a C. Context. Thank you. Context. Context. What festival is going on around this time? Passover. And why do they call the Passover the Passover? The Israelites were in Egypt in slavery. And God is coming to deliver them. He sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. 
And nine times in a row, they bring these incredibly miraculous and horrible plagues on the Egyptian people. Every time, Pharaoh says, oh, I'll let the people go. Moses, God through Moses clears up the plagues. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. The tenth plague was the most horrible. God threatened to kill every firstborn son in every home in Egypt. But he told the Israelites, this is what you do. I want each family to kill a lamb. I want you to wipe the blood of the lamb over your doorpost. And then as a family, basically have a barbecue. Eat, eat the flesh. The sarks, the Greek for flesh. Eat the sarks of the lamb. That night, the angel of death came over Egypt and passed over the houses where the blood of the lamb was smeared. To remember this Passover event is customary in Jewish homes even today. And what you do is you generally eat lamb and you drink the blood of the vine. The blood of the vine. In fact, if you've ever been to an authentic Jewish Seder, it's kind of like a religious, a religious drinking game. Now, I went to the Wilson Seder last year, and they, they don't use lamb, they use chicken, and they use grape juice for their, their drinks. But at every stage in the Seder meal, every time of remembrance, you're supposed to drink up. And the traditional drink is the blood of the vine, which is wine. Interesting, right? Eating of the flesh drinking of the blood of the vine. Now let's look beyond the context of John chapter 6. Does anyone remember how Jesus is first described by a character in John's Gospel? Man, I wish I had candy to throw at you. Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Ah, Jesus, Lamb of God. Passover season, eat my flesh. Does anyone remember Jesus' first words in John's Gospel? Some men were following him. He turned and looked at them and said, What are you seeking? And they replied to him, Where are you abiding? Where are you remaining? This word abide, the Greek verb is meno, is a major theme in John's Gospel. By the time we get to John 15, the whole chapter, a lot of it's about abiding in Christ. Where are you abiding? Now, check this out in John 5, or John 6, 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in Him. We don't literally eat Jesus. But we abide in Him. We trust Him. We depend upon Him for our very lives. And He takes up residence in us. Isn't that strange when you think about it? It is pretty weird. But we say weird things all the time. I I realized just the other day when I'm getting ready for this message that when Stella, our nine-month-old, is eating at her high chair... I can make her giggle by saying, I'm going to eat you up. And then I tickle her feet. It's because I adore her, right? You've ever heard that term, I'm going to eat you up to a baby? Or how about this, when you really want to meditate on something important, don't you chew on it a while? Don't you digest it? We use these types of terms for taking something in. 
Again, we don't eat Jesus, but we take Him in. We put all of our stock in Him. We trust Him. And He takes up residence in us. Here Jesus is calling us to trust Him so much that we live on more than bread alone. We live on the Word that comes from God. John 1, 14. And the Word became sarks, flesh, and dwelt among us. I'm getting goosebumps. You see all this imagery coming together. That Jesus, the living Word, became flesh. Take Him in. C.S. Lewis has this great analogy of a car. I think that it helps in this situation. God made us. This is from Mere Christianity. God made us. Invented us as man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits. We're designed to burn. He's the food for our spirits. We're designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no, there's no such thing. This is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended, civilizations are built up, excellent institutions are devised. But each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top and it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up alright. It runs a few yards and then it breaks down. They're trying to run it on the wrong juice. That's what Satan's done to us humans. Trying to run so often on the wrong fuel. Trying to run on the fuel of our image, of our status, of our finances, of what we can produce, of who we know, what country we live in, what sports team we follow. You name it. There's all kinds of alternative fuels out there. And Jesus says, if you want real life, you've got to eat me. You've got to ingest me. You've got to let me take up residence in you. And you know how you do that? Through trust. Through trust. Well, how do the people respond to Jesus? They reject him. They say, this is a difficult statement. Who could listen to it? In fact, the term in that sentence isn't so much that Jesus' statement is difficult to understand. It's that it's difficult to follow. Jesus' statement is difficult to follow. Abiding in Jesus is more difficult for most of us, I think, than trusting in a forceful, overtly powerful leader. When the going gets tough, people turn to Hitler's and Bin Laden's more than Gandhi's and Jesus's. We're people who want control. We want to know what's going on. We like power. And we don't do well with things we can't see. But Jesus is the kind of leader, the kind of king who gives himself up 
who gives himself up for you and I. It's no wonder that authentic Christianity, true abiding in Jesus, is much more popular among the poor and the powerless than it is among the elite. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he says, Pain is God's megaphone. And oftentimes, those of us who have enough wealth or enough connections can insulate ourselves from regular day-to-day suffering and we don't necessarily see our need as often. You know, I may not be a rich man in Bellingham, but I am one of the elite when you compared to the rest of the world. And maybe you are too. One of the things I do to remind myself of my need for God is I pray through the Lord's Prayer. And I get to the part of, give us this day our daily bread. I pray that. And then I say, Father, thank you that my cupboards are full. But I recognize that in one second it could all be gone. A fire. In fact, I was out working on the sermon yesterday on the front porch. I heard the loud explosion. Anyone hear that? Uh, That tree arced over the power lines. The lights were out in the lettered streets and I think into downtown for hours yesterday. Things happen, man. It could all be taken in an instant. My health could go bad. Corey's health could go bad. One of the kids could get sick and drain our account in a second. What would it look like to take an honest, stripped-down assessment of your life? If you stripped away any of the false comforts of savings accounts, retirement plans, if you stripped away your health, house, job, even friends, where would you turn? And as I say those words, I know that some of you don't have to pretend because you've lost a job, because you are sick. We don't need deliverance from Egypt or Babylon or Rome. But every one of us needs deliverance from sin and death. We all need forgiveness and the new life that abiding in Jesus alone can bring. So many of the crowds left Jesus. This teaching is too difficult for us. And there's Jesus standing with the twelve. You're not going to leave me also, are you? Peter, bless his heart, pipes up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. To whom shall you go? That's the question for all of us. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to think about that. To pray about that. To respond in your way. Either between you and God. You could pray with the neighbor. And one of the things we're going to do now, which we do the first Sunday of each month, is our prayers of healing. 
So I'm going to just put a comma on this sermon. There's going to be two stations up here with kneeling benches. 